Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Faye. So I sat at a round table group with today's guest as part of the Innovate Cambridge project. I was immediately interested in him for a number of reasons. So he's come to the UK as part of a Tech Nation programme, bringing his family to Cambridge. He's a CEO at a super interesting company. He's a non-native. I'm not entirely sure if I can say that, but I just have. So I'm really interested to hear what he has to say about London in Cambridge. So without further ado, let's welcome Gary Brotman, CEO of Second Mind, to today's podcast. Hi, Gary. Welcome to Cambridge Tech Podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's great great to have you here. Um, so I want to start talking about you, please. So can you give us a little bit of background about yourself, how you found yourself to be in Cambridge? Sure. A little bit about me. I am a an explorer by nature, product guy by trade. I found Cambridge. It's funny. I came to Cambridge and visited back in 2014. It was my first time here when I was working at Qualcomm and I was working I built a wireless whole home audio platform that companies like Panasonic were integrating to compete with Sonos. And it was shortly after Qualcomm purchased CSR. And CSR had a great Bluetooth business. They still do. They own Bluetooth around the world. And they were building a wireless audio or Wi-Fi audio platform as well. And I transitioned my product to the team here at CSR and moved into the core Snapdragon chipset group to head up the AI stuff that they were doing which was unusual for me because it was totally different than my background. And when I came here, I was here for a full 24 hours in Cambridge. It was raining and (laughs) foggy and like, wow, no sun. How am I going to do this? Well, I don't have to do this. I only have to stay here for 24 hours. And then fast forward to 2019 and here I came here to live and work. But it's the last thing I expected to do after my first visit. But I came here because there was a great opportunity with a startup that had really interesting technology, great people, great investors, great recommendations, and an opportunity to bring my family somewhere else. And my son was 10 at the time and give him an opportunity to build a a broader worldview as opposed to the, I think the narrow one he would have gotten in the US at the time. I still believe that. So the company that brought you over was Suck in Mind, right? It had a different brand name at the time, but yes, it was um, same core technology. Mm -hmm. But if you look at that company then versus now, it's a night and day. Okay. Brilliant at the time, brilliant academic researchers, great ideas, lots of exploration, very little exploitation. Mm. I'm trying to use like machine learning and research terminology. I was hired as a VP of product and marketing. And the one thing that I can say that I did without a doubt before in in the first year was rebrand the company. And it's Mm -hmm. a right brand for what we do. We're about helping today. It's engineers. Anybody make better decisions was the original premise, but be the second mind of the engineer, help them do better at what they do, smarter, more efficient, et cetera. We're one step behind them. We're not in the spotlight. Lots of research and consulting and exploration, but there was no discipline around product. 
and no focus. Right. And after a year of that, the board and the founders had an agreement to part ways and they asked me and the CFO to figure out what, what do we have here? Like, is there something that we can take forward? Fortunately, we did. And um, we took a very specific problem in automotive and we rebuilt the company around it. We were in three different industries when I joined right. and settled down in the automotive. And we can talk about that too. But yeah, it's a brilliant team of people. I think the core, the creativity and the academic discovery element still exists in the core tech and people like Carl Rasmussen, who's our chief science officer, still very much part of the core of the company, but the, the discipline and the focus are the, are the big change and having a sense of purpose, a real sense of purpose where we're headed. Mm. So you say the product kind of assists engineers. Uh, what's a typical use case? Uh, the first use case, and I guess a typical use case would be in the automotive business, you know, we're, we drive cars and we all drive these cars that are more like computers and they are just mechanical yeah. pieces of hardware. Um, all the systems have chips, ECUs, and they're running software with little lookup tables that tell the systems how to operate in certain conditions. Mm. So the first problem we had was with Mazda and they had a problem with engine calibration. Okay. They have a very complex engine. They have a lot of complex stuff in the vehicles. They asked us to help them figure out how to manage the complexity with you know, multiple parameters and constraints and the relationships between them. Problems that tools that were available and still are, were unable to, to address due to the level of complexity. So what we do is we talk to the system that they have on the bench remotely, our platform does. Uh, we call it the optimization engine. And for calibration engine, it talks to the, directly to that system. It can be a motor or an engine or any, any system. And tell that system to run in a certain way, mm. to send data back, we'll run some experiments, build models, the models will increase in knowledge over time with every experiment, and uh, half the time that you would with other tools, arrive at the values that tell the system how to run. Right. These values get flashed in a lookup table in the in the ECU. And is, is this happening in like an R&D environment or real time, real time. In, the, in the vehicle? Uh, no, it doesn't happen in the, so it happens in production. Right. So our engagement initially is in R&D and uh -huh. then they set up the tool chain for the production team and the yep. production team goes through this process with prototypes on a bench uh -huh. and hopefully they got it right in the design. We're actually yeah. helping on the design optimization side too, but in this case, physical system on the bench, very yeah. expensive. You want to make sure that it doesn't break down, step out of bounds when you're testing. Um, and we can typically calibrate a system in half the time that any tools that's out there can do today. Right. We're doing it all remotely. We're not doing it on-prem. Yeah. Um, we can usually work with a significantly lower amount of data. On average, about 80% of the data that you would have is just taken off the table. Okay. So we're doing more with less. Yeah. And it's not a marketing term. It's actually, we do it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and with the less wear and tear, after less time on the bench, the prototypes really don't have the risk of breaking, so you don't have to fabricate as many in the next okay. program. So there's real material savings, data savings, energy, and then just time. In an industry like automotive, you've got old, well-established processes and systems that yeah. still have to be built and run. You have to find a way to manage that complexity and wring out all the inefficiencies in those legacy processes so you can shift them to electrification, the things that are going to be built for the future. Right. And that's a tough job if you're a, a traditional automaker trying to transition. Mm, interesting. So how did you select the automotive industry then? 
Um, you know, there could have been multiple use cases here. Why did you end up with the automotive sector? As a combination of it was there in front of us and what we believed was the right thing to do. And I'll, I'll address the right there in front of us. So I think I mentioned we were, when I joined, it was still more about consulting and exploration. And we were trying to address supply chain and finance. And there were a number of other industries that the company had explored in the four and a half years prior to my joining. Um, automotive came in at the kind of after supply chain, which was the center of gravity for everything that came in and you were seeing like really interesting results, like real results. The other stuff, manufactured results, like in this big search area, we do really well in this little percentage. Right. But if you look across, it's like, why would anybody use this? It's not going to help them. The switching cost would be far greater than the value we'd get from it. Mm. But in automotive and this particular problem, the results were outstanding. You, you could just look at it and say, woof, we have something here. Mm. And there was quite a bit of spending I mean, exploration isn't cheap. And at that point in time, when automotive started to show signs of life, we didn't have a whole lot of cash left. I think Series B it was secured in May of 2019. And here we were the middle of, middle of the late 2020, 2020, yeah. So in a year and a half, there's a lot of that was gone. Mm-hmm. And COVID didn't make it easier for anybody. Right. right. So we're doing all this remotely and our customers in Japan, and we couldn't send people to go see what a test bench looks like. Anyway, all this stuff, but automotive, uh, or this problem was great. We knew the problem would probably scale. The topology of the problem is not unique to just automotive or this particular application. Mm. But we had to we had to make the call. We had to take place the bet. Is this problem we're solving, is it big enough to bootstrap the rest, the next phase? And it was. And the, the, the thing that really, I go back to like, is it the right thing for us to do? We didn't have a real clear purpose as a company before it was, you know, we're going to be one of these, you know, great machine learning companies and a unicorn and we're going to be successful and that sort of thing. It was the AI hype curve was still, it was still at the top. And in automotive, you have this very big challenge of emissions and climate change and the way that this industry has an impact on how we live our lives, healthily or not. And we all agreed that this was the right thing for us to do is like if there's an industry that needs this it's the automotive industry and part of our purpose part of our being is to help people become and companies become sustainable through machine learning that's the undertone of what we have and that's woven in our values but it's it was the right thing for us to do at the time and it was the right problem to start with because we were kind of proving it in the moment mm. and from a product perspective you want to f- focus on one thing get it right beat it to yeah. death and just relentlessly pursue it and build from there versus try to do five things at once. Yeah, so I, I guess there's always a risk that when you're there to commercialize that you stifle that level of, of innovation. But actually with you, you found a market with deep enough pockets. You know, I, you shared that question. So I had a little bit of a heads up on this one. I don't come from a world where commercialization and innovation are at odds with each other. Here I can see that if you classify innovation as breaking new ground for the first time, and then once you've broken ground, it's done. From a research perspective, I think that rules the day, right? And and as a researcher, and I have some brilliant minds in my office, the idea of solving the same problem twice is not terribly interesting. But you solve that one problem and you're on to the next. But what you really haven't solved the problem, you've 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 solved the equation. But the problem is far greater than the equation. In fact, the product is more than just the technology. In fact, nine times out of 10, it's not the technology. It's everything around it. 
It's the day-to-day report the user does or the, the end user does to solve the problem, like the tools they use, the challenges they face in every day, the workflow, the politics, all of that. So, I mean, Qualcomm's a perfect example of a company that just innovates all day long. They captured lightning in a bottle twice, which is amazing, but it was all about innovation. It was like engineering innovation, and we're just going to create stuff, and we're going to find a problem to solve with it. And that, when you have deep pockets, that's great. But you do need discipline. And I think innovation in pursuit of the next big thing is great. But if you can't commercialize and it doesn't result in an impact, then it's a great exercise. And I think it goes just that far. I mean, ultimately, everyone's got to pay bills. You know, you need to be brilliant. And, th- and I guess that that was part of your role moving from chief product officer marketing into the chief executive role. Yeah, I didn't expect, and I never had a CEO in my in my career path, to be honest with you. And I think given the circumstances, I probably wasn't the right candidate. Like, they were searching for a CEO. A CEO, in fact, before a prior CEO stepped back, there was a search underway. People have different talents for different stages. And I think the prior CEO saw where he was and where he was really going to make the, an impact for the company. And then if you get to the point, bring somebody in that has a big can of petrol and a Contact list and is at a scale of a business, just light it on fire, right? There was a founder of a venture capital firm that I will not mention the name, but when I was pitching him last year, he said, you're a tweener. You're not a startup and you're not a scale up. You're a tweener. You're like in the middle, right? So if you're looking for a CEO, hotshot CEO with an idea isn't going to be able to do all that. If they've got something that's already a starting point, you're just going to carry it forward. And you don't have enough for the scale up expert. Right? So you're like, what do you do? You hire from within, get people that may have an idea of what to do with it and give it a shot. And that's what the board did with me. And I wish I'd done it 10 years ago. Interesting. Why? Because I like the challenge. And I, I think the exploration side of me, I don't shy away from complex stuff and I don't shy away from stuff that other people would. Like even at Qualcomm, when I was doing AI, when I started doing the on-device machine learning stuff, There were people that were dyed-in-the-wool, old-school computer vision experts who never thought deep learning was going to make it beyond the data center. They're like, there's no way. It'll crush the battery. Like, the way that we do it is always going to be the way we do it. And you could see R&D and these guys just at each other's throats. I'm like, I don't know. The data seems to prove that we're going to get more efficient, and these use cases are far more interesting. And, yeah, so it's like, take a chance. Um, and that was the case here. And I, having the opportunity to try something new and the puzzle of people, uh, management and leadership, like the difference between the two, like management and organizing everybody's one thing, but to motivate, especially at times when things are difficult and to inspire. I was, I was, I felt like an imposter early in my career when I tried to do that sort of thing. I'm not cut out for that. But then you're put on the front line to do it. And yeah, I dug it. It was kind of cool. I, I I get scared to death sometimes, but I really like the challenge. Uh, anyway, I could talk. Well, have you taken the company on a bit of a kind of cultural change process then, mm-hmm. as you've become more commercially kind of focused and, uh, and like you say, with a, with a big research team, how you've changed the mindset and the culture of how that research is then applied? Yeah, I think um, I don't, I, I don't like to say that I changed anything. I, I like to think that I have provided the opportunity for people to change and given them a reason to do so, other than I just need my job. Um, we, did, we had values as a company. They were kind of homegrown through the, through the staff, but it wasn't something 
values weren't something that you actually used to make decisions and guide and to bind people together. At least the way I had seen it implemented, it hadn't been implemented that way. And there was no overarching vision or whatever you want to call that for the company. Right. So I established the purpose for the company, which was to help engineers in automotive build better cars faster. And that subtext of achieve sustainability through machine learning, because that's what we do. Um, and then the values were ones that I carried a few forward, but I also brought new values to the table that I felt were the right things for the people that we had, what would ensure our success long-term, help us hire better, help us decide in times that we really are gonna have a hard time deciding. Mm -hmm. And those things to me, I, and I say this a lot, it's either like the threads of the cultural fabric of the company. There is one thing that doesn't, that isn't as strong, and I, this is a challenge everybody faces, if you're in a hybrid environment. So when everybody went remote, yeah. you lost that connection. Like I used to be a DJ in my prior life and I still spin records and I like the tactile feel of turntables and vinyl, even though I have a system that digitizes it on the fly. Yeah. But there's something about the analog, being in an analog, in, being proximal and communicating that you cannot replicate through pixels. And there's a cultural dynamic that doesn't exist when you're remote. Like you don't have the same connection. Now, people learn how to establish connections digitally, and that's not to say that one's really better than the other. Mm -hmm. In a startup that can be frenetic and uncertainty is all over the place and you need like people to kind of make it through, because yeah. it's messy. That's the one part of the cultural dynamic that I think is more of a work in progress, because we are a hybrid. So a lot of people work remote, some people come in, research likes to be in every day, other people like to be at home without distractions and coding. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's not a, some teams come in at certain times, but I think that's the one thing that if anything, more proximal communication and collaboration would be an additional element of the culture that we didn't have. Are you kind of being more deliberate in the way creating like events or reasons for people to come in on the same day so you get that kind of not as much as we could right okay so we're in the process of moving offices okay and there's a lot of things that we're going to we're like carrying the lease on a big three-story building that was designed for far more people than we have right so we're finding an appropriately sized place and with that there will be an opportunity to make a number of different changes yeah we're still going to be hybrid but i think there are going to be ways to build excitement and energy into the new environment that we yeah. can't do where we are yeah, yeah, yeah. and give people a reason to want to be together and more events and yeah. yeah there's a whole slew of things we we're just talking about this today there's a whole lot of stuff that you just kind of pushed aside when we went remote for covid and we never fully came back we went through the transition the leadership transition and then we scaled back the company from three businesses to one back in the first quarter of 2021 so COVID was well underway. We had like we went through this transition remotely more than more right. or less, which is very awkward. Yeah, never want to have to repeat that ever again. But we we hadn't really established a baseline together in person. Yeah. So it's we've been hybrid from the rebirth of the company. I think so many companies are still trying to figure it out, right? I don't yes. think there's a. It has to be a playbook that works for your own company and your own culture, really, doesn't it? There's a flexibility in the productivity gains from giving people flexibility to work where they want especially based on job roles but the social aspect you know the kind of building the culture building trust with your colleagues that's so difficult to do remotely but equally you know post-pandemic in a very competitive labor market expectations now from candidates is 
quite aggressive, right? In terms of you expect me to come to an office kind of thing. You know, how, how have you seen that played out? You know, are you, is it becoming an issue for hiring? Well, it's funny, again, literally, we were having this conversation today. We adapted our hiring practices to accommodate remote working. In fact, half of our staff is 20 miles away from the city. Right. We, have, we don't have anybody other than the Japanese office working in other, any other part of the world. Mm -hmm. And we just have an entity over there. Demographics, like if you're relatively new to the workforce versus yeah. you've been around for a while, that plays into the desire, the disposition of the of the candidate or people that are working there today. Yeah. Everybody has learned to adapt differently in their personal life. And you are you have habits and processes and burdens that you share with your partners and your family that are ingrained in how you live. Mm -hmm. So those are difficult things and you don't want to disrupt those. Like everybody's learned how to balance differently. Mm -hmm. If anything, I've re-established or have created a new idea of what balance really means in my life. Because balance to me, when I was younger and before I was in this role, was I have to find equity, right? There has to be real balance. It's like, it doesn't work that way. You grab moments in time and you well, I focus on work over here and because mm. there's, there's downtime or whatever. It's a fluid thing. Mm. And I, you know, we were all forced to adapt to a situation that was pretty harrowing. And in doing so, we have different ways of working and different ways of living. And that's something we're very cognizant of. So we have to balance that with what's the right thing for the business. Mm. And it's it's not a static thing. Mm. I think it evolves over time. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So in a short number of years, you've actually done an awful lot of things. Okay, so what I'm, I'm going to go for here is what, what are the highs and lows? What are the things that you could share with people? You know, you've gone from a restructure, like you said, that must have been really challenging and not something that you, you want to do again. That's possibly, you know, quite a low, but then you've repositioned and put the market into, you know, a much more commercial stance. So what, what are the kind of highs and lows for you? Well, on the highs, focus has brought clarity of thinking, and there's always uncertainty in a startup. Like you can't get away from it. And one of the things that I ask people, every, like I'm interviewing a VP of product right now, and the first thing I ask is, "How are you with messiness and uncertainty, and not having a blueprint?" And a lot of folks I'm talking to work at big corporations like Siemens, and they've been doing that for years, and there's structure and comfort and all that. It's like there's no blueprint here. We have great technology, great ideas. We think we're onto something, maybe wrong. We want to find out sooner rather than later. Uh, if it is wrong, we'd also like to find out sooner rather than later if it's right so we can build the business faster. The highs, I think, having a customer like Mazda that was really like the reason to keep the company intact to some degree. If we didn't have Mazda, I think we would have stripped back even further. Like we went from 86 or 90 people when we focused on automotive, we went down to 55. Right. So it's a pretty big, pretty big downsizing. It wasn't really a pivot as much as it was a focus. Without Mazda and this problem and science of life there, we would have gone right back into deep exploration with fewer people to spare whatever capital we had left. Mm. Mazda's taught us a lot. We've learned a ton. They helped us build a solution that licensed it back from us, and they are still teaching us. And that has led to more opportunity with more automakers and tier one providers and others in the ecosystem. So there's been a halo effect that has minimized our need to expend a lot of money on marketing. So those are wins. I think the challenges are trying to move faster, as fast as we can. Sometimes 
Mazda and the work that we do for, for them, and then balancing that out with the stuff that we know we need to do that nobody's going to pay for in an SOW, but is just as important. How do you challenge your your ideas or, or perceptions of capacity and what you're capable of? You give somebody six months to work on something, they'll find six months. If you give them three months, they'll figure it out. And that's that's a challenge. And productizing is a brutal effort. It's You try to rinse and repeat, but you might get lucky. You might not. You might have to build something new, try something new. The customer's problem is, even if it looks good on paper, probably different. What they told you is not really the problem. And that that's that's a challenge. I'd say doing that and being able to do that faster and move at a pace that you can still spare the runway and try yeah. to create those opportunities for you. That, so it's a customized product for each for each customer. It's not for us. So okay. I've just but just you need that more example. opportunities to prove that, right? right you right, need right. to be able to take on more and parallelize. Yeah. Well, we we do have capacity challenges like any other startup. Mm. And like other startups that want to be able to grow, last year sucked. Like the market just clammed up. There's mm. plenty of dry powder and plenty of money, but nobody wants to take the risk. Yeah. Like the bar is like exceptionally high relative to what it was in 2019 mm. when you know this company got a lot of money for a promise. Mm. Right? Now you have to have a product. And you have to show ARR and you have to show that the pipeline will actually convert yeah. uh, regardless of like if you, the stage that we're at. So the, the bar's higher. What does the adoption look like from the customer perspective? Is it, is it a disruptive style of integration? Because it sounds like you're right in the heart of some really important processes. But is it quite light touch then? Is it simple for the customer to adopt the technology? Or So upfront is not... Like, it's not low touch. Like we get in and we want to help understand the problem and see uh -huh. the data to see if, you know, it's partly learning, but yeah. it's also, you can't just take this thing and integrate and go. The integration is fairly straightforward though. It's like we have a simple set of REST APIs and yeah. you plug into a tool chain yeah. and the OEM can choose to plug in to replace a tool on the bench yeah. or bypass something, but it's designed to be relatively simple to integrate technically. Right. And once it's integrated, it runs in an automated fashion. Okay. Engineer can interrupt. In fact, we actually like that. The blend we call it blended intelligence. Mm. There's a lot of lot of knowledge and a you know decades worth of knowledge that's not captured in the data. Right. So we want to make it possible for the engineer to participate and not have the the platform do all the work. Yeah. But if you're comfortable and you trust it, it can run in an automated fashion without anybody. And you pre-training the model with their historical data or you it depends on the problem okay um in a calibration world we can either train with virtual data right or we'll just grab data from the bench in an iterative way yeah do it really efficiently okay. and experiment 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 objective met right uh it depends each each problem is a little different blending physics data with virtual data that's an interesting challenge to virtualize more yeah. before you fabricate yeah. and that's that's a roadmap item but today system on the bench, pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. But it, you, you, you do have this kind of, you got promise on one side and you got product on another side. We're probably three quarters of the way on the calibration product to product. So there's still a fair amount of human in the loop. Mm. And then we're also using the same technology to optimize early stage designs and simulations. Right. So low fidelity simulators, we can, we can make them, uh, we could bring fidelity to them and we can give the engineer more choice when they're deciding how to design a complex system like a hybrid system in a vehicle. Mm -hmm. So same tech, the span of concept to first prototype 
that's, that's the broad area that we're focused on. If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. We also offer a range of high-quality meeting spaces for hire and for tech event organisers, our auditorium, Lakeside Pavilion and Atrium spaces are perfect to bring your communities together for in-person and hybrid events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919600. Can we talk about money um, for a sure. moment? Um, got any? <laughs> some probably not as much as you've got in your funding rounds let's put it that way so my first question is actually as part of I think was it the last funding round you took funding from Chinese investment as well so I'm kind of interested when the government is flip-flopping on its stance of doing business with China how did that decision come about or was it just very much led from your investment portfolio that predates me I will say that the the Series B round was comprised of a lot of companies in supply chain, because that was the primary focus. But also everybody, people that were investing in AI, that was still pretty hot. At the time, the political dynamics were quite different. Mm. It is a challenge. And I think we have to be mindful of a number of factors when we're going out to seek funding. And I spent, the, spent all of last year, and I'm still looking for some capital. Every site set on closing around, but everybody says that. <laughs> I have to filter, like forced to, for regulatory reasons. But that particular decision was one that predated me. Right. And does it did that create other challenges? The fact that they funded for supply chain and it's slightly different in terms of. What I thought it would now? initially. Some of the smaller investors, they really don't. There's, it's not relevant to them, so they're just kind of hanging on. But we do have a few, one of them being ReefNot, which came in on the B round, and they're very anchored in supply chain. And it was a challenge. I felt bad going to the, to, to, to the investor and say, look, we're, we're pivoting. And he's turned out to be very supportive. We're not strategically relevant. And we're just purely like, let's see if we're going to make our money. But it was a pleasant outcome from a relationship perspective. But the, the investors that have the, hold the most sway are the ones that are the primary on the board level. The rest are participating, and Tencent and Puha on the Chinese side, they're there, but there's no real impact to the business. And and you just touched on the board there as well. You know, you've got some pretty impressive names on that board. You know, as a tween company, how does that work? You know, with that level of people on the board, how what are the what are the pros and cons um, of that? And are there any lessons that you want to share? When I joined the company, there was a fair amount of tension between the board and the executive team. And it's not something I experienced before because in my in startups that I've been at previously, the board was your ally. They were your guide. Like connections for business and just general guidance. It was a more of a collaborative relationship. But it didn't seem like that existed when I joined this company. But they were also the most supportive in the transition. And they still remain supportive. 
Kevin Dillon at uh, Atlantic Bridge, Herman Hauser, yep. Ian Lane at uh, Cambridge Innovation Capital. You know, I think everybody that still has portfolio companies that were invested in three-year-old funds, mm. ones that still show signs of life, they're happy to try to get as much as they can out of them, right? And if somebody's willing to take it on and trying to take it forward, they've proven to be very gracious and flexible. They know where we are in our productization life cycle. They're not unrealistic in their expectations, and they give us a lot of support and latitude, and they've been very supportive of me. So I, I, my first direct interaction reporting to a board, I would want it this way. We actually met, as I said at the top of the podcast, at the Innovate Cambridge Roundtable recently. Yes. I'm always interested to hear people's views on Cambridge. And I think you've probably, you come from a slightly different perspective because you've come in, you've been here a few years. What, what do you think that Cambridge is doing right and wrong? Well, I think this, obviously the thing that Cambridge is known for, and other cities are too, but Cambridge is known for its academic prowess, right? You can't, it's very difficult to beat that globally. <clears throat> and I think so many great ideas and innovations, as you say, come out of Cambridge for that reason. I think culturally, it's more liberal and free of thought, and you can express how you feel and discuss and debate. And that's a, a having that opportunity without fear of retribution and is wonderful. In the United States, you express a view and you're usually going to get somebody that's going to challenge you. And I, I'm a little bit extreme in the way I say that, but there's less tolerance for opposing views. Here it's different. And while that's great, there's also a challenge when it comes to turning debate and decision into do. Like, let's just make a decision and do it, right? And I think that's one of the challenges that I've seen is you, could, you can analyze and debate for a very long time and get everything on the table. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's just, do we have to make a decision? Let's just make a decision. In our company, in talking about Innovate Cambridge, the initiative is wonderful. I think the idea of banding everybody together to say we're going to be a tech hub globally on the map, but it does require a fair amount of deliberate decision-making, not consensus and discussion. What else? I had written a couple of things down. Embracing failure, taking that risk and being willing to kind of fall on your face. It's not as accepting for a variety of reasons. Somebody at that, I think when we met at the table, there was a very politically correct way of saying fear of failure. I said, no, it's abject fear. Let's just be straightforward <laughs> here. Address it for what it is. It's painful and it's different culturally to talk about failure and mistakes in California relative to here, at least I've found. But I do think here it's more cohesive, not just in the city, but in the country. I was trying to explain to somebody what it would have been like had I been in, if my family been in the United States during COVID versus here, because we didn't have any family, no, no safety net, no, nobody to support us. We were on our own. We, we had some neighbors, but we really didn't know them well. Mm. We'd just gotten here. And I remember when the queen came on television and spoke to the nation, it was like one of the most comforting things at that time. And the queen, like you, and you have a much more, a much closer relationship to the monarchy than me. I came to visit with my parents when I was three years old. I remember changing in the guards and I remember the queen has been a part of my life present and to have her up there on television was a very comforting thing. And to think about what it would have been like in the United States, 50 states, 50 countries, 50 different ways of approaching this problem and all individualism ruling the day. It's not about your neighbor. It's not about 
being banding together. It's about, well, my rights. I'm glad I was here. My family, same thing. They they took them a while to adjust, and they're still adjusting. But that that was a very big moment for us to realize how fortunate we were to be in an environment where everybody's rowing in the same direction. Yeah, people on the fringe probably not, but for, by and large, that was wonderful. So that cohesion, I think, is something we really enjoy here versus the fragmentation and the divisiveness that we see back at home or what was home. Oh, that's interesting. So you you count the UK as home now, do you? I got my uh, definitely to remain status in October. Mm-hmm. We still have discussions about how long this adventure is going to last because it was a two-year adventure when we first set out for it. Yeah. But it's the adventure that, different adventure than what I promised the family. When it's warm, the mood is better. <laughs> <laughs> the sentiment is different. And I've been told that if I talk about the weather voluntarily, that means that I'm kind of settling in. Yep. We, we really love it here. We do miss being back at home and people that we knew and our family, our families are still there. But we also know that there's different, more pronounced challenges socially and otherwise back there too. And I don't want to get into the details on that one because these are all third rail issues that not worth the time to focus on. Well, a third but, of our audience is in the United States for the podcast, by the way. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so this will resonate with a lot of the, uh, the audience. That's good. I, I can't speak to what it's like to live in a, all over the United States, but I lived in Texas for a long time. I li- we lived in Southern California. I'm from the Eastern Seaboard. So I've kind of big swaths of the country. But I think the polarization is far more intense there than in most places. And being removed, I can filter my news and I can see more, see it more objectively. And yeah, it seems like it's far worse than when we left. Even though the president's a different president, the divisiveness is just, it's worse. Oh. It's pretty remarkable. I'll leave it at that. So what's next? What, what are your plans for the next, next few years? Personally or professionally? Either. Either you choose. Both. Well, I mean, professionally, I th- we're on we're on a very good path to productization of at least one of the two would be products that we have, and the other one has a lot of promise to be much more generalizable, not just in automotive. I think across multiple industries. So, we have no plans on leaving automotive. In fact, we decided to embrace this, and there's lots of opportunity, and you've got complexity abounds in this world of the new what they call the software-defined vehicle like a billion lines of code running in a car that's supposed to protect you and entertain you at the same time. It's like, I don't have the phone here because I was told to turn it off, but this is your car. It's the phone. It's your mobile phone with wheels, uh-huh. right? It's a, that's what it is. It's an experiential thing. And the experience of driving and the concept of driving is completely different than it was 20 years ago. So that creates a lot of opportunity for us. I don't, we don't feel pressured to leave automotive. I tell the board this. It's like, if something strategic came out of left field, in semiconductor or in cloud compute or some, we listen, but I haven't solved this problem yet. And we're not going to repeat the mistakes of the past, but maybe there's a future after we productized some of the things that we're doing in automotive. And my job as a CEO is to create options, like go one path, become independent, build a business that way. If they're partners that can help us accelerate that, explore those paths too. We're a two-year-old, I consider us a two-year-old deep tech company with a lot more than a brand new company would in two years. Uh-huh. So, you know, lots of R&D that's already paid for and sunk, but still facing the same challenges as an early stage startup. But so there's, I have to create optionality. 
You mentioned the team shrunk down to 55. What, what are you are that kind of number right now? Or We're 43. 43. 443. Did a little belt tightening last year. Yep. When you're fun, when you can't get capital, or you can't raise capital, and yep. it's taking longer to get customers and bring new revenue, and it's just math. Mm. And I hate to say it sounds callous, because I certainly, as my first job as a CEO, I don't want to be known for contraction. I want to grow. Right. But we have very strong pipeline, longer time to convert it. We had to be very deliberate about how we spent the money, mm -hmm. not knowing that when we we're going to get additional capital or revenue. Yeah. So 43, and I don't really, I don't share growth plans yet because it's not really worth sharing. I just know we have a lot of opportunity in the pipeline and I need more to, co to convert it. Yeah. Personally, we're going to ride it out for a little while longer. And again, no plans uh, to leave. I can see citizenship or dual citizenship on the horizon. I've already passed my life in the UK test. Oh, so yeah. Maybe that was the hard yeah, part. We couldn't do First that. time. Oh, yeah, we probably failed. First right? time. But Can you tell us anything that's on it? Yeah, what are some of the questions? I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, uh, there, I, I could give you indications, but don't put me on the spot. <laughs> Stuff that I wouldn't typically use in any setting, even in a trivia. Sounds like game. most exams. <laughs> I thought it would give me a leg up at quiz night at the Sir Isaac Newton <laughs> pub, but my family and I were so getting into that when we first came here. We loved going to quiz night at the Sir Isaac Newton pub, and we were dead last every weekend. We were just happy to be just participating. Yeah. Every now you get one or two questions right, there'd be something, yes, it's not, it's not a British question. Everyone knows you though, and everyone was delighted every time you rocked up because you were always going to be the last. We didn't get it. COVID hit before we had a chance oh. to establish a reputation. Oh. You'd have been good in the music round though, right? If you're a DJ. Oh yeah, music was fine. Although I'm not really a pop DJ. Well, I'm like a more of an underground kind of electronic DJ. Okay. So, and I'm, I was a DJ in Dallas at the time that the Manchester scene was raging and okay. raves were a thing and like Acid House through Chemical Brothers and Fabulous yeah, yeah. Slim and Left Field, all that kind of thing. That was all that. Like that's 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 in my DNA. Nice. I still spin records. Love and it. That that is that is my thing, man. I can just hug yeah. <laughs> another another time, another conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Open so a record store. And if we find a pub quiz anywhere, we'll let you know. We'll bring you along and see, okay. see if we can help. I mean, out. I think it's good to have diversity. Yeah, we're sure. just like three wet behind the ears Americans that have no freaking idea <laughs> what we're getting ourselves into. None of us do. Exactly. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been great talking well, thank to you. you. It was a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So, James, that was another great conversation on the podcast, I think. Yeah, nice to get the perspective of someone that's new to the Cambridge Cluster. Yeah, it is. And and I, I particularly like me being the action-orientated person, the comments on getting things done rather than just talking about them. Absolutely, yeah. And, and he, he, he talked, James, about the weather as well, you know, and I feel we should carry on and talk about the weather. It's actually been really nice. I don't want everyone to go away thinking it's always raining in Cambridge. It's actually been boiling hot, but I think this week might well have been summer. Yeah, to be honest, it's passed me by because I've just been sitting in the air-conditioned Bradfield Centre all week and haven't stepped foot outside. So I'll take your word for it that it's been hot. Yeah, lucky you. I'm currently melting in my office. Um, it's, like, it's a bit like reminiscent of The Wizard of Oz and I'm melting. <laughs> but anyway, there we go. That's the, that's the weather done. Lovely jubbly. Um, so this week is an, another, another busy one, I think. We started the week together, didn't we? We did. We had a planning session. So this isn't just completely thrown together like it sounds. <laughs> James, don't say that, honestly. 
Although, although I do think I had to, I, I had to rein you in on a few things. I mean, actually, some really, we had some really good ideas and some new things coming up. But we just, with everything else, it's very hard to fit it all in, isn't it? But I think we've got some some exciting things to keep adding into the mix. Yeah, I think I think that's the main takeaway. Expect some new stuff coming, like new formats, um, more guests. Uh, more news i think we need to double down on the news a little bit more so we talked a little bit about that so uh, yeah we want to keep 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 things fresh yeah and but not new presenters right (laughs) no i don't think so although that's probably what we we haven't discussed that together anyway (laughs) (laughs) no no that's just made the whole thing super awkward (laughs) (laughs) well tell me about your week then what's been happening um just lots of stuff really um yeah, no one... Well, I think the highlight, actually, was I caught up with Paul Smith, who I know we both know from Cam Creative. Paul's always great to spend time with and uh, a great connector. And he uh, he recommended I have a chat to a guy called Alex Hughes, who's the founder of Inspire to Ignite, CIC. Um, just amazing. Uh, um, we'll talk more about this, I think, in the future. But another example of someone in the local area that's doing loads of really good work to help... Uh, kids and young adults that that haven't had the best kind of start in life really kind of get vocational opportunities get inspired by that entrepreneurial mindset so had a really interesting chat with alex this week and uh hoping that that will flourish into a really interesting relationship with the breffel center yeah i mean it fits very well with some of the other work you're doing there as well doesn't it and yeah i know i know alex he's, he's a very exuberant character isn't he yeah, he spoke at one of the Cam Creative events and I think Paul connected the dots really well because, as you say, we we're already doing some work with um, tech educators to try and, uh, you know, give access to technical training uh, for people that haven't had the opportunities to go into higher education and university. How about you? What have you been up to? Yeah, I, I brought Charlotte Horobin, who's the new CEO, new chief executive at the Cambridgeshire Chamber of Commerce. I brought her over to the Bradfield Centre, introduced her to you, of course. You did. And to Jane um, at the Jane Hutchins of Cambridge Science Park. And so I had a really good conversation um, with her. Um, that evening, I also did some mentoring at the IECT, which is another, it's like the Impulse Program, but it's in Hermann Hauser's homeland of Austria. Right. And that I love doing that because, you know, my background's all the international and actually talking to three four companies there about what their plans are for tech innovation was was really interesting i've caught up with quite a lot of of the smaller companies this week as well so one of the locate cambridge companies govern future who's coming over to from turkey and opening up in cambridge which is exciting caught up with ben pellegrini uh, from intelligence who was one of our previous episodes as well you know um, Paul, Paul Beastel as well, he's ex-Cambridge Consultants, now got his fingers in the pies of Evenetics, and he's just become CEO of Hutton Bio, um, which was one of the 21 to Watch companies. So I'm pretty sure that he's going to end up on the podcast early in the new year because they're doing some really exciting stuff. And yeah, just, you know, do you know what? It's just really nice catching up with people in person. So that's primarily been what I've been up to this week. Amazing. Should we move on to the news? Let's do it. And it wouldn't be right if we didn't have news about ARM on the podcast, would it? It wouldn't. And, uh, well, let's start there. Apparently, as early as next week, ARM could take America's tech-focused Nasdaq market by storm. Uh, predictions for the valuation vary wildly, but the Japanese parent SoftBank is hoping for anywhere between 60 to $70 billion, which is double what it paid for the then-UK-quoted Cambridge company in 2016. Not a bad return there. 
No, no. And we've got um, we've got an interesting event coming up at the Bradfield Centre, which is very much related to ARM. Um, we've got James Ashton, who's the author of a new book called The Everything Blueprint, the microchip design that changed the world. So James is going to be doing um, a book launch at the Bradfield Centre. Um, so if anyone's interested in the kind of the ARM story, uh, very much recommend you come along for that. So as soon as we get the... Uh, the registration site live we will uh, we'll plug that on the podcast and the Bradford website brilliant and Let, let's nobble in for the podcast in the nicest possible way already have <laughs> perfect perfect um what else so Quantinium who have also been on the podcast they've partnered with Airbus and BMW group to develop a hybrid quantum classical workflow to speed up future research using quantum computers the idea being to simulate quantum systems and they're focused on chemical reactions of catalysts in fuel cells which you kind of assume with Airbus and BMW groups so things are definitely moving a pace in the quantum field as well and then to add another one, um, actually, I found this one out on, on LinkedIn um, in, in one of the company's posts. So later this year, we've got Seamus Hushier and Oriane Chossio from Heartfelt Technologies coming onto the podcast. And they had news that they shared, and I might as well share it on here as well. They've actually won um, Santander's X Global Challenge in the AI Revolution Award, um, which is really exciting for them. So I'm looking forward to see how they're using AI to help millions of patients uh, manage their own complex care needs. So we'll be able to pick up with them later on in the year. Mm, Congratulations. And I think that's it. It's next week we have Gerard Quick on. See you next week. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show.